I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Hi, it's Demetrius. Hey, Demetrius, it's Mark. They're in. Nice. Taking it to the next level. Launching phase two of Gable Media on October 7th. 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 Hello, my name is Demetrius. Jason is out, but you are listening to Spaces Podcast Express. Thank you for coming back, everybody. Uh, Like I mentioned, Jason is out today, uh, but we have a guest joining. He is an engineering geologist from Petrogeosciences. So please help me welcome Evan Price. Evan, thanks for joining us. Oh, happy to be here. Now I've been uh, listening to you guys for a little while now, and I'm happy to be a part of this. Great. Uh, thank you for listening. <laughs> of course. Um, for putting on a good podcast. Thanks. Evan, so uh, you want to give us just a little bit of a snapshot of your background and, um, and Petra? Of course. Yeah, so uh, I just hit my 15-year mark as a geologist in the Southern California, mainly Orange County, LA, IE areas. Worked for a few different companies over the years, but uh, 
currently I'm with Petra Geosciences, it's a, a geotechnical and environmental uh, consulting firm. And uh, we deal with uh, geotechnical issues you know, from small residential projects, such as custom homes to multifamily, track homes, um, and then dabble in infrastructure, public works, schools. Uh, we do, you know, forensic type jobs and, uh, you know, even some big vault studies. Okay. Um, kind of tackle, you know, anything we can. <laughs> range. You know, yeah, a wide range of clients and uh, it's a wide range of projects, which keeps it interesting. Yeah, I imagine. So how would you, in a couple sentences, describe what an engineering geologist is and does? Yeah, so for geotechnical consulting, generally we are providing a look at the subsurface for the clients and making sure that the buildings are going to be stable during any sort of geohazards such as earthquakes or issues with the soil such as you know expansive soils settlement um, so we're really trying to design a building foundation and the the grading recommendations to support you know long-term life of a project and then we also do get involved when things do go wrong and how to correct it how to you know fix it we you know we'll jack up buildings and give recommendations for that or um, repair landslides and how to you know, correct these issues when they arise. The main thing is to try to prevent that before issues start. Yeah. And when you're talking about repairing, that's basically reestablishing the soil to be able to maintain that building. Or is it, or is it something else? Is there um, concrete recommendations too, like foundation recommendations? Yeah. So there's a slew of uh, different repair methods. Um, there's routinely probably 10 to 15 different ground improvements that we can uh, assess and figure out what's going to be the most cost effective, what's going to be feasible for the job. You know, for landslide jobs, you know, sometimes it's grading with uh, layers of geogrids. Sometimes there's grade beams in caissons and um, other times there's walls of tiebacks. Then you look at other issues for um, poor soils that might have some settlement issues and, you know, there's a slew of soil densifications or you know grouting or you know we can go on and on about this but um, these are things we look at and try to assess what's best for the client and best for the project okay and then you guys are the ones that provide soils reports right correct so typically what we do is we start off with the site background and site recon um, and then we assess you know how we're going to uh, look at the subsurface and then we get out there and actually do drilling and depending on what the needs of the project are you know we tailor our investigation to that whether it's be you know just simple soil samples of the subsurface um, if we get into hillside we have to look at um, slope stability issues and potential uh, landslide surfaces you know, we'll actually drill a large diameter boring and a geologist will go down in the hole and physically log it up to, say, like 120 feet. And then after that, we analyze the soil samples in our lab. Mm -hmm. And then um, we get to our analysis and our analysis then goes into a report for the client. Now, is it better to conduct that soils report with a design in with a project design in mind or are you guys typically going to test that soil without any 
idea what's going to go on the site. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is a, it's a good question because we deal with both all the time and some projects it's definitely better to have a design, um, especially when you're looking at different constraints as property lines and retaining walls and putting in basements and whether you need shoring, whether you need, you know, this and that to make the project work. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we don't have the detail that we need to, to say, Hey, you're going to be able to not use shoring. So we have to provide maybe different recommendations, making a bunch of assumptions versus other times we do have that. And, you know, obviously that helps us not waste money and we can really dial in what we need to, but we understand too, that the people designing the project <laughs> might need to realign what we find yeah. to base their assumptions. So it, it goes back and forth. And, you know, a lot of times it, it's a hybrid, you know, we kind of start an investigation, we talk to the clients, we're working with them through it, and we have a back and forth, and um, ho hopefully, you know, any changes that they've made actually, <laughs> you know, we don't need to go back out and do more work, but sometimes that does happen. Yeah. So is there a preferred timing from, from your perspective of when soils engineers should come into a project? I mean, it's preferred that we get out there as one of the first consultants and a due diligence. Okay. Um, we can generally, you know, for these, you know, say a big track home greenfield investigation, you know, we, we typically will be out there for our clients and give them a heads up. It won't be detailed, but at least get people on the same page as far as, hey, this is what you're going to look at. This is what your anticipated costs are going to be related to, you know, maybe grading and uh, some other uh geotechnical issues mm -hmm. so i think that's preferred the earlier the better because we do uncover surprises you know we're digging in the ground and there's always there's always something there that's just not what everyone anticipates yeah and then i imagine uh, you sort of hang around for for a while and adjust the report as necessary based on sort of preliminary design scope and how that may affect your anticipation of what that soil is supposed to do. Correct. So after we issue the report, if the project say goes into grading, you know, rough grading, we'll also be involved out there. We have technicians that are uh, monitoring and testing the soil compaction, and we might have geologists on site looking at the excavations they open up. We're out there making sure that what we saw on our borings, which are these small little snapshots of the larger area, actually translate you know we make assumptions connecting the dots and sometimes there are surprises in there and once this you know scrapers are running through opening up the area we uncover different things and so we need to make real-time adjustments out in the field we also carry over to post grading and uh, we're out there uh, monitoring during post-grade activities too so we're generally involved you know sometimes three four years throughout the life of the project until they're our final report goes out and closes permitting process for the, the homes. You know, we give them a final sales report. Yeah. So that's on for the th three or four a year span is for like a large development, most likely. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I have a few 2016 projects that are just wrapping up now. Yeah. Wow. And then on the, like on a single family home, is that pretty clear cut? Test once, give the report. Yeah, like so how, the single family home is its own little beast. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you're aware of this. As far as it seems straightforward, I would say the problem that we encounter is we have like a minimum that we have to do. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that minimum translates to a much bigger area. 
but we still have to reach a minimum for even just a small addition at times. So we have to go out there and we still have to do a boring. We still have to do certain baseline laboratory testing um, that can translate to a much larger area. So there's not a cost savings a lot of times for these smaller projects. And that's mm -hmm. hard to sell to the homeowners at times that maybe don't understand that. Say, oh, I'm just doing this little thing. Everything else is cheaper. Yeah. We still have to do that one test, you know, or these one test of eight different things. And we still have to write a report that's basically similar to a larger area. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of per uh, standards that you have to do those same exact exactly. tests. Exactly. So, yeah, we good. have, you know, different standards, cities, building codes that we still have to follow. Yeah. So the time the time it takes is essentially the same as, exactly. a, as the, a large... The time site. and effort is very similar. And then also... I'm sure you're aware of too, these custom homes, they try to maximize um, square footage. I mean, we deal with a lot of the coastal Orange County custom homes, mm -hmm. which are, you know, the millions and millions of dollars. So square foot is a premium. Yeah. And to gain more square footage uh, with a lot of these height restrictions, they have to go down. So we do a lot of basements mm -hmm. and a lot of property line retaining walls and other issues that become fairly challenging because they're really like I said, maximizing every inch yeah. of a project. Yeah. So when you do that, it, it takes a simple, oh, it's a small house into this, you know, very complex, sometimes time consuming design. Yeah. I'd love to dig into the basement design, but I don't think we have the time today. Oh god. Yeah. So real quick, I could we, we do have one project in Laguna area. Yeah. Um oceanfront. So it has a basement basically into the beach. Oh my God. And it's also recessed into the coastal bluff. So we have this three story massive retaining wall in the back and a, you know, beachfront basement. And <sighs> you just look at, you know, with the, the ocean water considerations, yeah. you know, it's just a small prime property, but they had to spend these millions of dollars on this basement and wall design. To, yeah. You know, oh my God. Make, the, make this project where, yeah, you know, and there's a home above on the slope. Yeah. So it, it's, uh, when you get out there and look at it, I'm like, man, what, what, how are we going to make this work? Yeah. I couldn't even imagine what it takes to to sort of figure that out. And let me see. I'm trying I'm to see. You, it, it's money. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's the short answer. Yeah. Okay. It's not cheap. Yeah. So let's let's move on. Another thing that jumped out to me is the forensic side. Can you describe a little bit or, or maybe an example of what what you're looking at on the forensic side? Yeah, so sometimes it's just a homeowner, maybe a um, home, homeowner association that they have some slope creep issues or some expansive soils that are causing some cracking um, in walls or uh, some of the flat work. So it can be Fairly minor, um, you know, maybe some drainage issues are affecting, um, you know, portions of the house. So um, other times it's tied into litigation for the same thing. You know, I've been involved in these uh, massive track home litigations where basically a lawyer goes around, knocks on the whole entire community's house. <laughs> yeah. And then the consultants have to come in and say, is this claim valid or not? And you run through the house and, you know, we're looking at tilt of the, the slab. So we'll do a floor level survey mm. at times and see if, you know, there's issues. And, you know, sometimes we've had houses that, you know, over eight, nine inches of differential 
oh my God. settlement on the slab. So yes, I've seen problems since other times when it's you know fairly bogus in that yeah aspect. Um, and other times it's you know insurance claims if you know a pipe break is causing distress to the actual slab. So we get out there and just provide the expertise saying, okay, yes, this is a valid soils issue, or no, it's not a soils issue. Okay. And another thing that I haven't experienced, but I heard, but say after Northridge earthquake, um, there was a lot of forensic work done for the insurance companies. Yeah. Validating any sort of uh, earthquake damage claims. Got it. Uh, so in that in that sense, after an earthquake, you're looking for just extreme settlement or. Uh, yeah, not just... so much damage to the actual items in the house, but say, hey, my foundation was severely cracked, and I have some. Um, you know, cracking my walls now yeah. and trying to determine if that was caused by the earthquake or pre-existing. Okay. Wow. Uh, is there, is there a um, simple way to explain if you, how you determine between it being um, pre-existing or caused by the earthquake? I, I did hear a funny story about this. Okay. And uh, one guy is kind of a mentor to me. He's supposed to, telling me about him doing this it was running around LA after and developed a simple question. He would ask people, when did you last put in your carpet? So oh, I don't know years and years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, well, you have carpet glue or carpet glue in these cracks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you look at little things like that as far as you know, maybe the freshness and if there's a bunch of dirt or glue in the cracks indicating, okay, Hey, that, that's been around for years. Okay. And, and we see that because people don't necessarily look for these cracks and other things until there's that earthquake. Yeah. So it's it. not that they're being malicious. It's just. You start you know, looking for it. <laughs> yeah. You start looking and you start finding these things. Yeah. And we see that too. We do pre-construction surveys, say if there's an adjacent property um, next to a big basement excavation. Mm-hmm. Now we can, before construction starts, we can survey the home and look for cracks and document everything. Yeah. And then you compare if they have any claims saying, okay, that was there before and or not. Got it. All right. Uh, we're coming to the end, Evan. Uh, told you it goes by fast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> is there anything you want to leave us with? So I would say that, yeah, I have been listening to you guys. And mm-hmm. one thing you guys have talked about is um, people asking questions. I know that was a recent one of you guys. And I found it really interesting. It got me thinking. Yeah. A little bit too. Um, and thinking about my career as being a, a staff person and probably bugging the crap out of, you know, these people above me. <laughs> yeah. um, but it made me realize too that my profession is very much a um, learn on the job mm-hmm. type training. You come out of school and you have a geologic background, but you don't really have a construction related background. And there's, you know, a lot to learn being out in the field and being around job sites. Yeah. And, approaching it differently. So if there's any young people listening, ask questions because I realize that you don't know these things. And if I don't hear these questions, I start really getting worried. You know what I mean? I'm like, Hey, wait, you should be asking questions. You shouldn't know this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Being bugged sometimes, uh, you know, you don't want to bug the bosses too much or your, you know, project managers, but that's how you learn. Yeah. No, that's yeah. a, that's a good point. 
And you mentioned sometimes Googling things, but hey, uh, you know, you're on a job site and something's going wrong. I don't know if you can t- <laughs> necessarily Google. There, there's a lot of just, I've been through it and yeah, not, not a lot of answers online. It's just, I've, I've relied on the experience of a lot of good people around me over the years. You know, we have people with 45 years of experience in my office, so pretty old and, you know, a lot of resources. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. Uh, so don't be afraid to, uh, to bug bug the people above you her right well it depends on the question too (laughs) yeah good good caveat (laughs) all right evan uh is there do you want to leave any sort of contact if people want to reach out to you on linkedin or social media or anything or check out the company website or something yeah, we actually do have a new company website rolling out here shortly. Okay. Um, I'll post something on my LinkedIn, but yeah, LinkedIn's best for me. Okay. Um, I, I don't have a huge social media work presence outside of LinkedIn, so okay. Um, just search for Evan Price, geologist on LinkedIn. Okay, cool. All right, Evan, thank you so much for joining me. To the listeners, thank you for listening. Talk again on Tuesday. Yeah, thanks, Demetrius. Thanks. This show is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app. It helps others find us, and your support is the only way that this show grows. And don't forget to connect with us through our Facebook community, Instagram, and see the random thoughts and articles that we share on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you again for spending some time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, 
shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK, the three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.